Hey Vanessa. Hey Adam. I'm. What's, what's <laughs> happening today of all time? I don't know. What's day different from all the rest? <laughs> well, clearly because this is the first time that I'm going to release this episode of Uncertain Things. Thank you for listening on the day of recording it. That's the only. That's the thing only thing that could that, at all be different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that and you know there was an election last night. Well, oh, all this <laughs> pales. All this pales in comparison Compared to the fact to that, that we had yeah. the pleasure of speaking with david french who, yes. is, who is really one of my favorite people in the public space right now he is I had a lot of fun getting to know getting to read his stuff getting to read his book so yeah this was this was fun for me to get to know this 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 intellectual that you admire he is senior editor at the dispatch that mm-hmm. trump skeptic conservative magazine and our neighbors at substack David also writes for Time Magazine and records the Advisory Opinions podcast with Sarah Isger. And he's just released a book ominously titled Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How Mm -hmm. to Restore Our Nation. This ain't a feel-good book, but it is an amazing read. Yes. Really, really, really well written, and and we get into this in the in the conversation with David French. But for me, really fascinating to how he can get into the minds of people on the left and the right. Because like he gets, I obviously I read him talking about people on the left, and I'm like, yep, that's how we think. That's what we're afraid of. That's death, right. And then when he does the same thing on the right, I'm like, oh, that's what they think. That's what they're afraid of. So it was a really, really compelling read for me, and really, really well written. So I highly recommend it. Regardless of what you do with this podcast, you should go right. and and buy this book and support this wonderful yeah. thinker. And unfortunately, we didn't get we we had limited time, so we couldn't really get to some of the solutions as much as we would have liked to that David French puts forth because we spent a lot of time, to, you know, on brand for us. We spent a lot of time dwelling on what's wrong and, and the issues at at stake. So if you do want to learn more about the potential, yeah, we're we're betraying our tagline. Everything's broken. What? Now what? now what? We're never getting to the now what? I know. We just dwell in the broken. We're just <laughs> dwell in the broken. Maybe that's we should change that. <laughs> on certain things, we dwell on the broken. <laughs> um, but but this, I will say this conversation was great. And in a moment of, of remarkable uncertainty, I do think feel like listening to someone like David talk about, you know, the fact that we're all human and we're just just talking past each other is in a way kind of optimistic, I guess. I I hope so. And I hope yeah. that that this is not just a conversation between people who are on the fringes of two big camps, but that this kind of energy could end up pulling more and more humans back to sanity. Yeah. And I think if you're if you're watching the results and you're sad for because the person you voted for didn't win. I, I do for me it has been kind of good to remember that, you know, it's not it's not the end of the world. Like the other side is are not subhuman. They are not voting for evil. <laughs> um and you know we will get past it some maybe somehow or other. maybe. Maybe. Or civil war. Or civil war. So those are the options on the table. I do speaking of the elections, I do have a small I don't know if it's a surprise. No, it's a small surprise. <laughs> After the David French interview, I have I'm gonna play a little montage that I've strung together of some of our previous guests whom I asked to reflect on the election briefly in a thirty Ooh. second chunk. So we're gonna hear from Katie Herzog, Robbie Suave, Tomer Persico, and of course Misha Thomas, the liberal who voted for Trump. That's great. Look at that bonus content, Adam. Way to go. Yep. But if we had a Patreon, this would have been the Patreon content. But, you know, enjoy it while it's free, folks. <laughs> I suck at business. <laughs> All right. Let's 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 get into that conversation here. It, here we are talking with David. French. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you. Oh, happy to do it. So we really are, we can't wait to start talking about your book. Yeah. But today being today, what, what are your yes. thoughts? <laughs> how are you well, How are you feeling? What are you thinking? Well, you know, I'm a little mad at myself, to be honest, because I, I have long been, in, and as I write in my book, polarization is very deep. There is, we are very closely divided. There is very little kind of um, 
persuasion going on anymore. There's much more mobilization of one team against the other. And so, you know, years and years of data would tell us that this would be a highly polarized election. And then we also had the data that said, no, the, the polling data that said, no, this might be an eight, be an eight to 10 point lead. This might be a Clinton Dole scale mm-hmm. defeat for the Republicans. And so you had sort of these two competing streams of data about polarization and polling and polarization was correct mm-hmm. and the polling was not. And uh, I, I had a prediction before uh, the election. I actually went with the polling. I thought that they had corrected some of the mistakes and maybe they had from 2016, but then made, there were different errors this time. Um, but I think that this, what we're enduring right now is just the fruit of negative polarization. It's, it's so difficult to win voters over to your side, to take voters from one team to another team. And that, that's what we're seeing right now. It's, it's funny to hear you say that because I, I love listening to you on um, advisory opinions. And uh, not to call you out, but I think at least two or three episodes or chunks of episodes were devoted to defending the polls against, oh. against poll skeptics. Yes. Very, yes. very, very vehemently. Which Adam is a strong, has been a very strong poll skeptic for the last like three months. So I think part of, part of his question here is, I guess some, there's some yeah. vindication in you there. <laughs> yeah, there's, there, there's some unresolved tensions there. Are you, are you dunking on me? You might be dunking on me. <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you, you and Sarah broke my heart is, is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing was, I think the difficult thing when you're not when you're not a pollster and and you're looking at polling data and you know kind of what mistake they made before in 2016 which was sort of this underweighting of the white non-college voter and it appears that they're correcting for that you know to all external appearances it looks like they're correcting for that and then the sort of the counter the counter argument often is well there's people who are just kind of not being honest with pollsters or sort of mm. more reluctant to express express their true feelings and you're trying to hunt for that in data and you don't really see it except in maybe some of these other pollsters like Trafalgar for example um and they're way out here on their own island and and you're sort of default especially if you look at a lot of data um for you know it's just part of your job is you kind of give a side eye at the guys on the island, but every now and then, you know who's right? The guy on the island. <laughs> Before we, we get into the good stuff, the Trump campaign earlier today held a press conference in Pennsylvania saying that they're definitely going to call on the Supreme Court to hold the vote count. I'd love to hear your legal perspective on this. And I'm a legal file, so please feel free to get technical. Yeah, I would be very surprised if the Supreme Court halted a count in Philadelphia, I mean, or in Pennsylvania. It has already received uh, not one, but two uh, appeals regarding the Pennsylvania count, and it has rejected the Republican position in both of them. Now, Amy Coney Barrett has not participated um, and Amy Coney Barrett has, has not participated in those decisions uh, but it appears that the most recent one may have been unanimous so um, there's a general pattern that we've seen in these in these uh, scotus um, cases involving election disputes and that is that scotus as of pre Amy Coney Barrett was deferring to state election officials who But also but not permitting federal judges to alter state election uh, rules. And that's called the Purcell principle that essentially creates a cautionary principle that says that um, federally imposed changes in election rules close to an election day are disfavored. And so that's how you see what seems like an inconsistent result where the Supreme Court lets stand, Pennsylvania's three-day uh, extension uh, in allowing people to, to, to um, get mail-in ballots post-election day let that stand but did not let stand a six-day extension ordered by a federal judge in, in Wisconsin. Wisconsin yeah right 
And so if you look at the source of the um, election rule change, if it's coming from a state source, there's a greater chance the SCOTUS will let it stand. If it comes from a federal judge, at this point, it seems like almost no chance that SCOTUS lets it stand. All right, I, I am cognizant that um, we, we, we could definitely get pulled into talking about current <laughs> events for the oh, rest for of the, sure, the yeah. hour, but, but Adam and I both read your book and we really loved it and we definitely want to get into some of the stuff that you unpack there. Um, but I'm also cognizant that I actually had not heard of you before Adam introduced <laughs> you to me. Um, I think because, probably because of some of the reasons that you write in your book and that I'm very much stuck in my, you know my lefty silo here. Um, but would you mind describing yourself in a nutshell for folks who may not? We have, I think we've officially called the gave the tagline for this podcast is a dumb introduces Vanessa to, <laughs> to people. To people. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah, the he loves. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, there's no reason why you should know me. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm uh, my current, my current um, job is I'm a columnist for time magazine. I'm a senior editor at the dispatch. I used to be, uh, at National Review, a con- conservative intellectual magazine. And before that, I was a religious liberties lawyer, constitutional lawyer, working for um, various public interest law firms. My background, I grew up in the South. Um, I uh, grew up, I was born in Alabama, raised in Louisiana, Tennessee, and Kentucky, which makes me about as the most legitimate Southeastern Conference football fan you'll find. Um, Southern evangelical pro-life and uh, really, as I write in my book, you know, grew up in the very much firmly in sort of that Reagan Republican mold, if that makes sense. And I was always a civil libertarian. Uh, I was always a person in my legal career who defended the rights, the civil liberties of all people, regardless of ideology. Um, but I was also pretty partisan. I was the kind of person who would walk into a voting booth and uh, uh, I don't even know that they do this in Tennessee anymore, but it used to be when I was when I was first starting to vote, you could just press one button hmm. and the whole ballot for one party <laughs> or the other would light up. Wow. And I just press the R and watch the, the lights go up the screen and I'd walk out thinking, you know, I've done my job. And uh, I've become much less partisan uh, over time and, and left the Republican Party in 2016 after Trump was nominated. So... I'm one of the tribe, that very small tribe of never Trump conservatives that mm. um, that pro-Trump Republicans like to tell us constantly at length and voluminously that we're irrelevant, mm. <laughs> but they can't stop writing about us, <laughs> <laughs> Just obsessing about us. To, to put it in perspective, you have a very startling line in the intro of your book in terms of what you considered as, as a younger man to be the, the biggest threats to American safety. Yeah. Should, should yeah. I read that line, Adam? I mean, yeah. it's pretty extraordinary. I have it written down here. Uh, so you write, and sorry to, to parrot you to you, but um, in 2007, I gave a speech at a conservative conference where I actually made this ridiculous statement. I believe the two greatest threats to America are university leftism at home and jihadism abroad, and I feel called to fight both. Then I went to war, and now I'm ashamed of those words. Yeah, that paragraph hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, can you talk about that that change? Yeah, absolutely. So... You know how our American political language is sort of steeped in the language of war and conflict. I mean, you know, there it seems like we have uh, outside of war, there's like two areas where we use war language more than any other, football and politics. Mm. And, and our politics, even, you know, we're more polarized now, but even in 2006, 2007, we're very, very polarized. Uh, and and, you know, one of the things that you see is a constant, and you still see this, you see it even more, sort of a constant argument that says, if the other side gets what it wants, America is over. That, or, you know, if the other side gets what it wants, it will destroy our democracy or end our republic or, you know, we've heard all the different phrases. And, you know, I had been litigating for free speech on campus. I had been engaged in a lot of legal battle battles with um with progressives on university campuses. And I was fully steeped into that world. And, and so when I used that language, it didn't strike me as remarkable. And in fact, it didn't strike the audience as remarkable. They applauded. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> and then I went to Iraq and I saw what an actual enemy was. 
Mm. And I mean, we are my unit as with the Third Armored Cavalry Regiment. Are are we fought uh, the precursor to ISIS? They were transitioning from Al Qaeda in Iraq to ISIS. They called themselves at the time the Islamic Caliphate of Iraq, and all the awful atrocities you saw in 2014 and 2015 were happening in 2007, 2008 when I was there. And I just remember feeling like this deep sense of regret Um, because, you know, look, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, bluest of blue. Ithaca, New York. I think it had a socialist mayor at the time, (laughs) bluest of blue. Um, My first year of marriage was in, we lived in Midtown Manhattan near Gramercy Park, bluest of blue. And we had a good life in all of those places. I had a good life in law school. I had a good life teaching law school. My son was born in Ithaca. You know, uh, I lived in Center City, Philly with my young children. I had a good life there. I couldn't go to Balad Ruz before it was cleared out of Al-Qaeda and have a good life there. I couldn't have any life there. (laughs) Um, And it just really struck me. I just need to have a a sort of a sea change in attitude. There is a giant difference between a fellow citizen who is a political opponent and an outright enemy. And, And that doesn't mean that you back away from what you think is right, but it's a sea change in your attitude and in your mindset. And so I come back from Iraq and I find that I'm kind of zigging while everyone else is zagging towards more intensity, more division, more polarization. Um, and, I, and I began a journey that in a way culminated with my like declaration of independence from the GOP in 2016. You are, from my perspective, as somebody who's becoming more and more familiar with your work over the past five, six years since I basically moved to New York. You're one of the most, I'd say, intellectually humble people that I know and intellectually compassionate people that I know in terms of being able to relate to and describe truly what other people, even your opponents, think and feel. And I don't know if it's the the lawyer buried there or or truly trying to relate to your enemy in, in the in the biblical sense. <laughs> but or not that biblical sense, but you know, um, <laughs> not knowing them biblically. Not knowing yeah. them biblically. <laughs> <laughs> to read that you had a moment not so long ago saying something mm-hmm. so rankly partisan and tendentious is really rattling. You know, maybe without being deployed in Iraq, you would have still had this conflation of actual mortal enemies and and people you politically disagree with and if david french could have still been in that trench what where does it leave the rest of us well you know it's funny i mean you know that that's a that's a really good point and and it's part of the reason why um you know one one of the one of the things that i write a lot about is the need for sort of this existential humility because um, a lot of us are sort of, gr- we grow up and we're acculturated into a world and into a mindset that leaves it difficult for us uh, and sometimes impossible for us to sort of step out of our own skin, so to speak, and, and gain a bit of perspective. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is people change not just from experience, but they also change from testimony. <laughs> hmm. In other words, they change from hearing other people's experiences. I mean, this is something that's, you know, really important in the evangelical tradition. The power of personal testimony is very, very important. And so, you know, it's one of those things that has caused people to have greater awareness, for example, about the prevalence of racism in the United States. When somebody that they know and they like says, hey, here's what I experienced. You'll never experience it, but here's what I experience it. Here's what I experience. It's very powerful. And, you know, so that's one of the things that I want to do is sort of use the power of, to, to whatever extent my experience has power, to use the power of my experience to say, hey, you know, the pre-2007 mindset was, is, is toxic. It's toxic. Now, if you'd known me in pre-2007, you would be, you'd actually have been surprised to hear me say that because that's not, mm-hmm. you know, in my day-to-day relationships with people, that's not the way I conducted myself in my litigation you know, I, I learned at the feet of litigators who were, which, you know, who were, 
they were they were um, vigorously defending their client, but they did it with civility and decency. But I, you know, like a lot of people, especially when you get into sort of these hot house ideological environments where everyone's sort of whipping each other up into a frenzy, you can find yourself susceptible to it, and you can find yourself being caught up in it. And and honestly, that's you know, I'm I know that's what would happen to me. Um, and and so that's why I try to I want to tell the story and to be open and transparent about it because I also think that we need to be sort of more open and transparent about ourselves um, and some of our doubts and mistakes if we want people to trust us. <laughs> um, I think if we cast ourselves as always having known, uh, always having been right. Yeah, that makes you a decent polemicist where, you know, you can preach to the choir and kind of whip them up. But uh, if you want to be somebody who is reaching across very, uh, you know, reaching across tribal lines and having any kind of ability to do that, I, I think, you know, a degree of honesty and transparency is imperative. The radicalizing effect that you underwent is is what you touch in your book as the, the I think, the pre-deliberation tendency? Yes, And I want to get into that in a second. I'm just wondering something that Vanessa and I were talking over in the kitchen, preparing for the interview. Roommates, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Do you think that if you weren't deployed in Iraq, you would have been on the Trump train today? Ooh, ooh, that's a very good question. I tend to think no, and I'll tell you why. Um, I've always had a bit of a contrarian streak. Hmm. Um, and um, I, I centered a lot. I came of age politically, you know, I, I first sort of began to engage in politics from the standpoint of interest during the Reagan era. But activism was during the Clinton era. Um, so I was in law school from 91 to 94. Clinton's elected in 92. And that's when I really got engaged in an, in, in, uh, as an activist. And I distinctly remember the level of outrage that I had at Clinton's personal misconduct. Um, and, and I thought it was disqualifying. Like the, the, way he, the way he treated Monica Lewinsky, the, the lies under oath, the efforts to obstruct justice, I thought it was disqualifying. And I can't imagine looking myself in the mirror, Iraq or no Iraq, hmm. if uh, I was going to be on the Trump train in spite of the Access Hollywood tape, in spite of the hush money to porn stars, for which somebody's actually sitting in prison for that particular scheme, in spite of the unbelievable record of sexual predation that is corroborated and corroborated and corroborated. Um, I, can't, I just can't imagine being in a situation where I could look myself in the mirror because I've always really hated this sort of notion that somebody else's misconduct um, justifies and rationalizes my own. In other words, I'd say, oh, look, Democrats, you supported Clinton no matter what in 98, so I'm free to do the same. I don't think that that's a moral principle. Mm. Um, I, it's not a moral principle that I recognize. So I, I don't think I would be on the Trump train. Um, Now, I will say that it was probably easier to jump off it <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or to not, to not board it because of that experience. But, uh, you know, I've, I've actually thought a lot about that, whether or not I'd had the experience what I've been on there. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, it's on Earth 2. Maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I've got a MAGA hat on in Earth 2, right. but, <laughs> uh, but I don't think so. So, I mean, but clearly a lot of people that you know have got on board the Trump yeah. train, right? Um, and I think you do a really excellent job in your book of explaining how people got there, put folks on the right and and vice versa on the left. Mm -hmm. So would you mind talking a little bit about that, that this is idea of of the big sort and how yeah. how we ended up getting so getting on these trains going in really different directions? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a few things that are happening together at once that are very, very, very powerful. Just, it's not even political. It's just cultural and human nature working together. And one is this concept called the big sort. And this comes from a 2009 Bill Bishop book that says, 
you know, we're living, we're moving and living around people of like mind to an ever, ever, ever greater degree. Uh, to the point where in 2016, we'll, we'll see what the statistics are in 2020, but in 2016, more people lived in what are called landslide counties. Those are counties where one side or the other wins by 20 points or more than any time we'd been measuring the statistics. So you're, you're clustering with people of like mind, um, not just like mind politically, but like mind religiously, um, church attendance maps, chart political maps, chart TV watching maps. I mean, you're, you tend to live around people who watch the same things on TV. So Game of Thrones is like the Hillary map and The Walking Dead was like the Trump map. And so you're really walling yourselves off into these like-minded enclaves. And that has a really interesting effect on people that when people gather amongst, uh, when you gather amongst people of like mind, you all tend to get more extreme. Um, And this is a Cass Sunstein concept called the law of group polarization. And that means that sometimes it can get so extreme that you can have a group that will, that will become more extreme over time than the most extreme person at the start of sort of the group deliberation or the group dynamic. And, and you see this happening in American politics that we used to have this sort of really big bell curve where most people were center right, center left. Um, you know, there, there was a good reasons why a lot of people on the right and on the left looked at, say, for example, 2000 Bush v. Gore and used terms like Tweedledee and Tweedledum, you know, they, they said they're basically the same. Uh, they were very similar within a, you know, within a center right, center left range. And what's happening is that that bell curve is being flattened. And so those edges are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And a lot of that is as a result of these um, super clusters of like-minded Americans. So the white evangelical church, for example, voted 81% for Trump in 2016. It's a lot of people of like mind who gather together multiple times a week often. Um, the whole island of Manhattan has got about 85% same, uh, voted for Hillary. Similar numbers for Trump, I mean, for uh, Biden. So that's a ton of people of like mind who gather. And then what ends up happening is you move further apart from each other. And that leads to sort of this last phenomenon, which I talk about called the Overton window, where the range of acceptable discourse, like what's okay to say in each community changes to where in some areas, in some ways, you can't even talk to each other anymore because the language each side uses is unacceptable to the other. Mm. And so then you are living apart, you're thinking differently, and you can't communicate. And those things together become... Uh, ex- extremely corrosive to unity. And then when you pile on top of that, that the fact that we're living apart in these big geographic enclaves that have their own distinct culture and feel their culture is under threat, like the American Pacific Coast is very, very blue, dark blue. Um, much of the Southeast and Midwest is bright red. And the Northeast is dark blue. And you realize that, wait a minute, we're kind of coming apart at the seams. This concept that a group that is already self-sorted to some extent ideologically deliberates within itself to reach, rather than moderation, but a more extreme position than what it held before. Is that something you encountered personally? I'm, <laughs> boy, I, you know, my personal experiences of it, you know, because I, I grew up in the South, I live in red America right now. I'm I'm very very intimate I'm intimately familiar with the migration for example of uh thinking on the right. And uh so for example I'll give you a good example um gun rights gun rights. So in 1986 and I I pegged that date because that's also sort of a, a good date to peg the start of the same sex gay marriage movement same sex marriage. And I I kind of chart how two movements one starting in blue and one starting in red really took off in a way that worked a very, very large change in a very short amount of time. And on the right, it was gun rights. And so in 1986, the vast majority of American states did not grant a person a right to carry a gun outside the home. You didn't have a right to do it. You, had, you lived in a state that was either a no-issue state, it would not issue a concealed carry permit or a carry permit of any kind, or a may issue. In other words, you had to ask permission. And it could be granted or not granted. 
Well, move forward to, you know, 20 years and that just flips on its head. Move forward 25, 30 years. And not only do you have all, but maybe two or three states are uh, shall issue states. In other words, they're going to give you one as a matter of right. You have a right. As long as you can lawfully own a gun and pass the test or take the class, you're, you're going to get um, a, a carry permit. About 15 states became what's called constitutional carry, which means you don't have to get a gun permit. The Constitution, the Second Amendment is your gun permit. If you can lawfully own a gun, you can carry it. And I can remember, you know, if I was in law school, if, you know, I was in law school 91 to 94, and you said to me, David, constitutional carry is going to become a bedrock position of Second Amendment activists. I would say, what? What is that? (laughs) So this was not a long-term goal of the Second Amendment crowd 20, 30 years ago. I mean, for some, it may have been. But, you know, I was sort of like, you know, I I wasn't an NRA strategist. I was just a a standard issue Second Amendment supporting conservative. And so I'm not sitting there thinking, ha, here's the goal, constitutional carry. I I didn't even know what it was. Like, I didn't even know about it to have it as a goal. And then fast forward 25 years, and I was in a conversation with a – a uh, Tennessee gubernatorial candidate and before the last Tennessee electoral cycle. And I said, what's the most common, just out of, you know, just out of curiosity, what is the most common um, question that you're asked on the trail? And he said, oh, that's easy. When is Tennessee going constitutional carry? Hmm. Um, And so that's a, that's a big cultural change. And it's one that moves these red areas that have really embraced this very far away culturally from blue areas of America. So if I walked into example, for example, San Francisco, and we started talking gun rights, and I started advocating for constitutional carry, A, I'd have to explain what it was to a lot of people, and B, as soon as they learned what it was, they would wonder if I had landed from the planet Mars. (laughs) Like, who advocates for that? Um, And you can go through different Uh, you can go through different issues that are hot button issues. And not only are the two sides not in the same ideological universe, advocating for one of those positions from within that uh, ideological universe can get you banished. (laughs) It it can, it can get you excluded from, from polite society. And as a result, we get two separate overtone windows instead of one collective shared exactly. idea of what is was acceptable norm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And those so, two windows are moving further apart. Yes. So it makes it really hard to even have conversations. Yeah. Um on very on on issues that are of deep, deep importance to people. And and that's one of the things that then leads to instead of conversation, it's you ha- you engage in conflict that feels very zero sum. Um either win and have my core rights vindicated or I lose and I lose something too precious for me to even contemplate losing. But these are not sufficient terms for secession. They're not even sufficient sociological, psychological terms. So what, what are you seeing on top of that? I think those terms are sufficient for misery. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're certainly sufficient for polarization and misery and and anger and fear and all of the things that afflict our our body politic. Um, But to make secession, I think, something real, you have to, and I went back and I looked at 1776 and I looked at 1816, 1861, the two secessions in American history, one from the British Empire and one from the Union. one from the British Empire for liberty, the one from the Union for the evil cause of slavery. And what did they have in common? You had geographically distinct, I mean, geographically, geographically contiguous, culturally distinct regions that believed their culture was under attack to the point of actual physical fear. Um, so, the the colonies, for example, um, yeah, they had very profound differences with the with the British Empire. They had very pre- uh, profound differences with Parliament and the Crown, but it kicked up several notches when the British regulars arrived in Boston. 
Um, and, you know, as, as y'all, you know, as we remember from history, the Lexington and Concord confrontation came when regulars were on a raid, an actual raid, trying to seize arms from the colonists, um, which, you know, ramped up physical fear. What a lot of people forget about Americans' accession in the South is the extent to which the Confederacy was caught up in what um, McPherson called in his seminal one-volume history of the Civil War, Battle Cry of Freedom, uh, unreasoning fury or unreasoning rage. I can't remember the exact phrase, but unreasoning <laughs> anger. Um, not just about the defense of slavery, although that was certainly part of it, as you, or uh, the core of the intellectual case for secession, as you read from the, the secession documents. They were caught up in fear of a slave rebellion that they believed that the North was trying to stoke to kill Southerners. Um, this would be your example of a 1860, 1861 version of a viral, viral um, conspiracy theory, mm. uh, uh, you know, a viral Facebook conspiracy theory or Twitter conspiracy theory. Even in, if you read the Texas secession documents, it even says that um, uh, Northerners were trying to poison, poison white citizens in Texas which there was just no basis for it. So that there's your sort of 1861 version of fake news. Hmm. Um, but it really, the partisan press really um, put the Southern population in a frenzy uh, of, of rage and anger and fear. And so they essentially lost faith in the American democratic system and just, and, and seceded and didn't just secede, they opened fire on Union forces at Fort Sumter. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I, you know, I, I say we have these ingredients that we have a cultural, uh, geographically contiguous, culturally distinct region that believes its culture is under threat, but not to the point of feeling that sense of violent threat mm -hmm. in the same way that previous American generations have felt when, before they took drastic action. It's interesting, though, because we, ju we just had a conversation uh, with... Robbie Suave, who just wrote a book called yeah, Young Radicals, and mm -hmm. in talking to, to these young radicals in, in campuses across the country, his the main thesis of his book is that he walked away that with the, the fact that these these young adults have a different concept of safety and what yes. and what counts as safety and, and, and inflictions upon one's sense of safety and what's <laughs> what they're what's allowable to react against. And I'm curious if with that in mind, if that if does that uh, change somewhat your evaluation of our current moment? <laughs> well it it I, oh I'm sorry Adam. No 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 I was just chuckling because I was imagining the difference between the revolutionaries who you know <laughs> could it would just take it normally as that you know the, your blanket could give you dysentery and kill you. <laughs> <laughs> the the people say, your blanket gives you death. that's a grim life right there that's 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 revolutionary life I, I, yeah absolutely hashtag revolutionary life contrast that to campus life where the sh cafeteria chef is violent because he served you tacos yeah yeah that's no i uh, you know you're you're i think that the trend you've identified something very important, and I talk about it a bit in this in the book. This sort of sense of safetyism that mm -hmm. Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Hyde identified in their their book Coddling of the American Mind that we're more likely to equate speech with violence, for example, rather than violence with violence. Speech mm -hmm. also becomes violence, or people begin to feel that their physical or psychological safety is at stake in the presence of particularly a speech that's particularly offensive to them. So I think, yeah. Part of that is stoking that very sense of emergency and danger that I warn about. So it's a negative trend. It's just not severe enough yet to create a crisis. And, and I've been thinking a lot about this because I've seen a lot of the same, you know, some of the same illiberal, many of the same illiberal tendencies I've seen on the very far left, I see on the, on the far right as well. But what's very interesting to me is that it's not the same age demographic. Hmm. So oh. um, I feel it seems like on the far left, you have a younger age demographic that is much more likely to sort of take the speech as violence idea. Um, on, the, on the right, with the exception of sort of this small cohort of MAGA youth, 
the larger cohort, say of young evangelicals, for example, is much more open to discourse than their elders. And so the older segment of the evangelical public seems much more focused on grievance, um, much more um, prone to try to engage in kind of the cancel culture of the right. Um, and, and, and oddly enough, and often replicating some of the same behaviors. And so, for example, that you've seen in sort of what like they would moral call majority, snowflakes. <laughs> 90s moral majority types. Right. You know, the same people who boycotted Disney in the 1980s get really, really, really angry if like Liberty University, the largest evangelical university in the United States, hosts for a conversation a Trump critic like John Piper, this Christian pastor, John Piper. In fact, John Piper is one of the most famous and widely followed pastors in America. Uh, Liberty took down his convocation presentation. Huh. Liberty removed it from its website. Um, Deplatformed it. Deplatformed, exactly. Exactly the kind of thing that, you know, when I was president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, we would, we would condemn when a university said, nope, sorry, we're not going to have this commencement speaker. Um, but often the pressure to deplatform is coming from different demographics. This is the point in the, uh, in the episode where I bring in my Israeli origin. <laughs> I think it's the outside, it's a common outsider's perspective of America that American society has this strain of moral panic and censoriousness and that the torch yeah. has been passed between generations, but across ideological lines, which is fascinating to observe. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, this is something that, you know, it still kind of boggles the mind when you think about it, that we actually had a prohibition amendment to the mm -hmm. Constitution banning alcohol. That, that, is, that was a remarkable development in American history, hastily abandoned because it turns out that it's easier to say you're going to ban alcohol than to mm. actually ban alcohol. <laughs> but, but yeah, there is a sort of um, puritanical streak that manifests itself frequently in American public life and not always in a, it's not always a specifically Christian puritanical streak either. It's a, but it does have echoes of fundamentalism. Um, and I, I've, I've, I've argued this, that it's very difficult to understand a lot of far left um, activism unless you've had direct experience with fundamentalism. I grew up in a fundamentalist church. And so I see a lot of the behaviors uh, and I, I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> When was the first moment or maybe the most amusing moment for you to, what, to observe and say, oh yeah, reminds me of home? <laughs> you know, I, it's funny. Um, I, I think it's one of my first weeks at law school. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of times we look at things that have happened in now or in recent years and we say, oh, this is new, but it's not new. It's sort of come back. And, mm -hmm. and, and when I was in law school in the early 1990s, um, this was what you might call the first wave of political correctness. This is when it was very fashionable in the, fashionable in the Ivy League to actually shout down people in class if they said something you didn't like. Um, harass people to the point of calling their employers to try to get them fired, um, send them, you know, I'm not going to call them death threats. The, the notes I would get would be like, why don't you go die? Hmm. Um, which is more like a death aspiration. <laughs> like, like, I'm not going to kill you, but I hope somebody does. Death proposition. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember um, talking to people and they had never met in their lives say a, a southern evangelical never met one never talked to one never met an evangelical and we're often very focused on um making sure that nobody else heard from me <laughs> and i thought man this so reminds me of growing up in a church that was saying that really didn't know many people outside of the church And was also focused on sort of silencing or suppressing, um, you know, the, the boycott culture. I mean, um, a lot of folks think that's new, but this is something that like, you know, the, um, that the, the religious conservative world embraced with both arms in the 1980s and early 1990s. And I thought, oh, 
wow. And, it, and the funny thing is it gave me like this sort of sense of um, odd kind of camaraderie hmm. in the sense that I, I know, I, I feel like I know you. Hmm. <laughs> so, so far we've dwelt in the optimism and <laughs> why we're not heading towards succession. Mm-hmm. But then your book takes a turn, both thematically and stylistically. Yep. Section two of your book, you go from straight political analysis to counter history, almost sci-fi, alternative history genre writing, which is unputdownable <laughs> in how terrifying it is. I read it. Uh, I think I, a couple of nights ago before going to bed and I was like, by the time I finished the two scenarios, I was okay. So I'm not, I'm not going to sleep tonight. And what you do there is describe in detail through an urgency driven narrative, the two plausible scenarios that you're imagining for a real American divide. And I want you to describe it, but I will tell our listeners that I highly recommend that you get the book and read it for yourself, especially if you have trouble with too much sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the things, because I, I have been talking a lot about a, a polarization around the country. But do you remember when we had these things called speaking engagements? Um, I vaguely, from the back of my mind, but I, I used to give speeches and I would talk about polarization and I would talk about these very themes. And people would say, well, how could this happen? And I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to spin out two scenarios, one based on what I call a Cal exit scenario and another one, a Texas scenario, California leaving or Texas leaving that sort of takes ripped from the headlines issues um, and, and turns them a l up a little bit. So these are not, these are not uh, uh, what you would call immediate future scenarios. They're sort of medium-term future scenarios where all of the trends that we've talked about keep happening. We keep walling off geographically. We keep having more animosity towards each other. And so in the Cal exit scenario, I, I walk through a situation where there's just a series of uh, a terrible mass shootings culminating in another awful, awful mass shooting in a school that triggers a, um, a, a reaction from the California legislature to ban the kinds of weapons that were used in the massacre. Not all guns, but the kinds of weapons that were used. And then an immediate reaction from a, and as I describe it, this might sound familiar to some folks, a Republican administration that was not elected with a popular vote. Um, and with a Senate, of course, that was sort of moving in the, tendence, the, the tendencies we see now where a decreasing number of Americans are responsible for controlling the Senate. And this sets up a showdown between uh, the federal government and the state government that just escalates and escalates. And I don't, I don't project a, a civil war at all. I, I, I just, I don't think Americans, I don't think the army would fight itself. Like, I don't, I don't think that that would happen. Um, but what I project is something along the lines of a divorce. And, and the Texas scenario involves uh, a combination of increasing pro-life sentiment in Southern states. And, you know, I talk about the wave of heartbeat bills that were passed through the South um, in 2018, 2019, and combined with a reversal of Roe, which then leads to court packing and a confrontation with these states over not just abortion rights, but religious liberty. And one of the things that I have in common to both of them is sort of, uh, you know, there, there are historians who referred to the generation right preceding, the political generation preceding the Civil War as sort of the bumbling generation the, that um, statesmanship was lacking, shall we say. The generation that effed things up. Yeah. And I don't know what y'all think about our current political class, but <laughs> I don't see a giant amount of statesmanship. And so what I, what I uh, imagine is a, a political class that's better at throwing fire, uh, fuel on the fire, then sort of um, suppressing the fire. And, you know, one of the things that we learned from history is that events can get their own momentum. Um, and so part of the goal of the book is to, to make it realistic enough to where it connects with your imagination to say, oh, yeah, this could happen. And I've had a bunch of readers who say, you know, I was about 10, five or 10 pages into your Cal exit scenario before I realized it was fiction. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and that that means that you know I I like to hear that because it means that you know I did my job. I I was reading it last night uh, in the kitchen, and I was reading the gov the Calexit. California governor's speech and I was like it's like I know that this is a bad scenario but there is a tiny part of me that's like that sounds great and I was like I was like this is the problem this is the problem exactly yeah I tried to you know step into everyone's <laughs> shoes as much as I possibly could and yeah. and um yeah I mean because one thing about the book is you realize that each side has this competing narrative of grievance and they don't make yeah. it up there are actual bad things right. that happen and they may extrapolate too much from them, but they don't make up the bad things. And so then you begin to have this sort of litany of wrongs that one side has done to the other. And yeah, it can get its own momentum. And you really did a terrifyingly fantastic job at capturing the, the anxieties on both sides. Vanessa mm -hmm. was just telling me. Um, if you yeah. do, want to just oh. recap what we were talking behind David's back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, while you were restarting your Zoom, so I, I just had a, a call with my family, um, and they they were just all sitting there, so mind boggled about how it could be possible that the race is yeah. so close, and they're they're just completely flabbergasted. Um, like, how could it be? How could it be? Um, and I think it's it's because we really don't we do not we uh, on the left we have no idea we cannot empathize nor understand what's going on 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 the right uh, and for me it's it was really interesting reading the book because it's like one of I I almost want to like send it to everyone <laughs> in my family because I want to be like look like this is what's happening like this is this is how how we've gotten to this place and it's not because the other side is right. subhuman right exactly <laughs> exactly each side has a story they tell themselves and in the way that I began to have a, an insight into that actually does go back to my Iraq experience because what I saw between Sunni and Shia was not that the Sunni, you know, say police officers I talked to uh, were ripping their Shia over theology or politics. They were angry over what the Shia had done. You know, you have, mm. you, they killed my nephew, they killed my uncle, and, and vice versa. When you talk to Shia, they were not ripping the Sunnis about theology, even though they're, you know, old, ancient theological differences. It was, this is what they did. They, they attacked my village. And thankfully, we don't have the same magnitude of grievances against each other, but our grievances do often include violence, as I talk about, is, you know, the far-right violence that has, you know, the the awful and evil uh, attacks on synagogues, the awful and evil, you know, attack on, you know, on the church in South Carolina, the Walmart in El Paso, you know, where uh, alt-right, a member of the alt-right is hunting down Hispanic customers, just evil, evil stuff. And You're saying we're not above violence. Not above violence. Not at the same scale, thankfully, that, you know, exists in other countries, but not above violence. Not as gruesome as Shiite and Sunnis. I was thinking about that a lot because the comparison is more revealing than it might seem at first. Though not as gruesome, there is something that is very much blood feudy in, in the relationship, in the way that, like you said, it's a constant rollback to who, who perpetrated the, the last grievance. You, you didn't, like Mary Garland, well, you it brought, it took down the filibuster. Well, you blocked Bork. And every time you feel like you need to up the ante in your response and you need to escalate. Yeah, exactly. Everything, there's a constant escalation. And so uh, it's not that each escalation justifies an equivalent reaction. <laughs> it's that each escalation justifies another entire uh, escalation. So, you know, if Harry Reid cuts off uh, the filibuster for lower court judges, well, then Mitch McConnell's going to get rid of the filibuster for uh, Supreme Court judges. I mean, each thing justifies an another atrocity. And so um, it is, yeah, that, that's, that's where we end up. And it's, we're in this kind of doom spiral of ever escalating. And we're always feeling justified by the next escalation. And then our escalation justifies mm. the next escalation. It's sort of like, you know, mm. there's the law of motion every action has an equal and opposite reaction in politics it's like every overreaction has a greater and more extreme <laughs> overreaction attached to it 
and without any moderating force from government or leadership or even public leadership, it's not gonna it's not gonna come down. And right now, both on the highest levels of government and in the lowest level of political media and online conversation, all the incentives are pointing to more fuel. Exactly. Exactly. The incentives are aimed towards a more fuel. I love that the, the characters, though they in your narrative, they, though they were nameless and <laughs> they, they, they had a very clear echo of familiar figures from our current political reality. And specifically, I was I, I the the Supreme Court scene, which was I could almost see the characters there, the grimacing justice who's attacking the California attorney over gun rights, who is normally taciturn. <laughs> who could that be? <laughs> was that you just being intellectually playful, maybe trying to entertain yourself and your reader, or are you actually trying to reach these people? And maybe tell them, this is what could happen. Pay attention. It was much more designed to make it feel real. Um, mm -hmm. Because the more I could connect it to identifiable characters, the more I could connect it to sort of an identifiable, dispo identifiable disposition or personality, the more I thought that it would uh, connect with the readers. And they would see this as a possibility rather than some sort of like fantasy fiction. So artistic license, really. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do we have time for this? We have, we have 60 seconds because we've, we've covered a lot of where we're at and, and what's the, the, the stuff that's pulling us apart. But you do, you do end with, uh, with a section about how to move forward. And in your mind, it's this embrace of pluralism. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> I, the 60 second version <laughs> of how do, how, do, how do we do it? How do we embrace pluralism and move forward? let me frame it within two transcendent moral principles that are both contained in the book of Micah. Um, and one is Micah 4.4. And this is a, a, a verse that George Washington used almost 50 times in his writing, including most famously to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island, when he was trying to assure Jewish Americans that this most persecuted religious minority would have a home in this land. And, and the verse is this, every man shall live under his own vine and his own fig tree and no one shall make him afraid. If you're a fan of the musical Hamilton, that will sound familiar to you because that's what Lin-Manuel Miranda put in George Washington's mouth in the musical. But he used it almost 50 times as a writing. And that is a transcendent moral frame for pluralism that says each one of us in our distinct communities should feel as if we have a home here where our fundamental rights are respected and our fundamental rights are not under threat. So that's the macro how do we get there? Well, how do we get there? Then another verse from Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? It is to act justly. It is to love mercy. It is to walk humbly before the Lord your God. Act justly. That's kind of easy in this activist era. You know, hey, this is what's right. <laughs> Let's do it. Loving mercy is hard. That is to humanize your political opponents and to have grace for them when even when you believe they're wrong. And then humility might be the hardest of all because it acknowledges the complexity of the problems that we have and our own limited knowledge and understanding to deal with them. And so I think that those three things together, that means, the means are that act justly, love mercy, walk humbly towards an end where every man sits under his own vine and fig tree and no one will make him afraid. All right, words to take us into this, <laughs> to the next day as we as we await and see how the I, how the politics unfold. I, I will just pin there that you you write in the book specifically about the importance of accepting some neutral rights as as, as things that are undeniable un, un question across the board, which would have brought the next question. But how do you determine that? Because I would assume that Second Right, Second Amendment people would say that guns are a neutral right. But yeah, there's no sort of utopian way through this. You're going to have conflict. You know, you're, you're, you're going <laughs> to have disagreement, but it's manageable disagreement. It's manageable conflict. Uh, just this last word that one of the best ways I've heard pluralism described and sort of this classical liberalism of our founding is that um, is that classical liberalism and pluralism are the best civil war avoidance mechanisms man has ever devised, <laughs> uh, which doesn't mean it's utopian. It's accommodationist. Mm. It lets 
people who disagree with you live and thrive beside you, even as you try to live and thrive beside them. And it's a change in cultural temperament rather than in policy. Correct. Exactly. Often it is. Yes. David, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Do tell um, Sarah that we in the household are also big fans of Pandemic Legacy. Oh, excellent. I will. I will. <laughs> She's texting me right now to join the podcast. So, okay. <laughs> thank you so much, David. Okay. Hardy, thank you Keep guys. Bye bye. Thank you. And now, as promised, here are some of our previous guests commentating on the past 24 hours. This is Katie Herzog, the co host of the Blocked and Reported podcast. I'm recording this around 7 a.m. West Coast time. I've been up since about five, listening to the news and scrolling through Twitter and trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. It appears as though Donald Trump has outperformed expectations, at least the expectations of much of the mainstream media and the polls. I am disappointed in this. I am not surprised by this. I learned in 2016 that the media, much of it at least, is disconnected from the American voter and polls don't necessarily reflect how people are going to vote. I don't think somebody should be totally surprised to see similar results again. And I hope that this time around there's some deep introspection on um, the part of journalists and pollsters and democratic strategists about why exactly Donald Trump appeals to so many people and not just white people. He appears to be doing better among black voters, Latino voters, Asian voters, LGBTQ voters than he did in 2016. Why is that? I'm not sure, but uh, I think we need to think about it and not just sort of write these populations off as bigots, as racist, as sexist, as whatever. Um, I still have hope that Joe Biden will, will eke out a victory, but this is clearly not the blue wave that a lot of us were hoping for. Hey, there's always 2024. Katie really captures the heaven slept for seven hours aspect of this night, which I wholly share. Here's, uh, Robbie Suave, who's for some reason energetic, Reason Magazine senior editor and author of Panic Attack. Well, my quick thought is that Biden still looks likely to me to prevail, uh, albeit by a far more narrow margin in the Electoral College than expected. Uh, indeed, this means that though Trump is going to lose, uh, no one has lost more than the pollsters, who it turns out uh, totally got it wrong and, and actually could not find or identify or speak with the, the supposedly shy Trump voters. It turns out that was true that these people were being undercounted, uh, that the media had four years to kind of find and understand and relate to these people and totally screwed it up. Uh, and as a result, I have a hard time believing that uh, Trump will really be repudiated whatsoever, given that this is likely to be a very narrow loss, uh, albeit a loss. Uh, it looks like Biden is going to, uh, going to prevail. Here's Domer Persico, religious scholar and UC Berkeley visiting professor, author of The Image of God. I was expecting a landslide for Biden. I was really optimistic and no doubt uh, I was in shock uh, when the first results came, as many I assume. The news is that Trump is, not only Trumpism, but Trump himself is not going anywhere. Um, the news is uh, many different ethnic groups don't go along with identity politics as we think they should. Um, and the news is that we are living in a different world than we might have thought. And um, the next few years are going to be dramatic in, in many ways and, and, and reshaping our politics. This is a time, I would say, of realignment of tectonic changes in politics. And I think uh, not many Democrats nor Republicans understand quite uh, the shift that is going on right now. I will say another thing, and that is that we are witnessing, we are going to witness over the next few days how robust and really uh, deep-rooted the American democratic system is. The president is going to yell, it's, it's going to approach the courts. 
is, uh, but it's not going to help. I mean, uh, uh, probably Biden has won, uh, and and the votes are going to be uh, the, what what will be decisive. And we already are seeing uh, members of the president's party, like Marco Rubio, insisting that of course every vote needs to be counted, etc. This could be taken for granted, but I think it it does it is a testimony of how much democracy is really important to Americans, and it's not so in many many other countries. Thank you. With a view from the other side of the ocean, here's Israeli international journalist. Nadabial, author of Revolt. We were watching the results here in Israel, and what was apparent is the enormous difference between Israel and the rest of the world. Israelis are very supportive of President Trump, at least the majority of them. And of course, the government and Netanyahu have become close allies of this administration. For them, a Biden presidency is not a disaster. But it is a disappointment compared to what they got in the White House right now. And many Israelis just fail to understand why Trump is going probably to lose his position. For them, he was the best president ever, something he'd probably be able to relate to. But if you look at this into the depths of the political discussion in Israel, then you see that the center left in Israel is feeling revived. People are saying, if Trump can lose this election, which it seems that he just did, if he can lose this election, maybe we can assume power again. And it seems that the U.S. elections will resonate like this with progressive causes and liberals all across the world, not only in Israel. Last but not least, our dear friend Misha Thomas. My reflection on the USA presidential election 2020, the day after, results still pending. This election gives me the opportunity to accept the results of the election, no matter what the outcome, with civility, respect, engagement, and full acceptance, and to likewise handle any of my political adversaries or people with whom I debate with the same sense of respect, civility, and engagement. Thank you, guys, and thank you all for listening to Uncertain Things. Please subscribe on uncertain.substack.com and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while at it, why not give us a five-star rating and share with your friends to help them and us get through these difficult times. Until next time, stay sane.